0: I'm Joe Grogan. Welcome to a special edition of DC EKG, where we explore the biggest public health crisis in the United States right now, the addiction and overdose crisis. We have over 100,000 Americans now dying of overdose from opioids. And we are joined by, by Art Kleinschmidt for a conversation about how to address this. Art has unparalleled experience as a street-level treater He himself has overcome addiction, and then he got himself a PhD so he could better reach out and save lives. And then he developed policies at the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, at the White House, and at the Office of National Drug Control Policy. This is an important conversation, and many of you may be either struggling with addiction or have loved ones who are struggling with addiction, and we hope you share this episode with those who may need it, and we have contact information for resources that can help the people that need help get it and save more lives. Welcome back to EKG. This is Joe Grogan with Eric Euland. We're joined today with, by uh, Art Kleinschmidt, who is one of the nation's foremost authorities on addiction, overdose, and the opioid crisis that our country uh, is facing. Um, Art, I, w- I want to start uh, talking about, you know, your expertise, but I know you just got back from the border, so we'll get into that a little bit later. But in my experience in working with you, you had this unique blend of real world treating experience uh, as well as policymaking experience. You treated people for how many years for addiction?
1: Uh, I started in the treatment industry right after I got sober myself. I got sober January 4, uh, 2002. So after living in a recovery community, I started as a volunteer and then as a tech and then later as a licensed uh, professional therapist, mental health therapist.
0: And then, uh, so then at the beginning of the Trump administration, you
1: joined the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, is that right? That is right. I uh, was actually appointed as a senior advisor to substance abuse to the assistant secretary at SAMHSA. And then uh, I was fortunate I brought you over
0: on detail to work for the Domestic Policy Council. You also brought me into SAMHSA.
2: (laughs) <laughs> the backstory revealed. Yeah. You know, yeah. right, yeah. right, the right, truth yeah. is now out, yeah. and
0: then you went to OND, the Office of National Drug Control right. Policy, right, where you finished the
1: administration. So that was four I, yeah, years. I, I, I yeah, I, I served at Sampson, and I was uh, uh, detailed to the White House at ONDCP, and then me, then I served uh, full time in Domestic Policy Council okay. as the uh, mental health and addiction expert, and then from there I got promoted to the Deputy Director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Okay, I did so four years, four positions. Uh, Pretty much, well, I stayed the one position, even though I was working in the White House. You maintained, I was a detailee, so I maintained my HHS connection until I actually became the deputy director, which required a presidential uh, appointment. Okay.
2: So when you came into the administration, there's a significant challenge, obviously facing the entire country, that the president's incredibly focused on. Challenge of opioids, desperate Addiction, death, all sorts of damage throughout a whole bunch of communities. The president campaigned on addressing this directly. He wanted intervention. He wanted a new approach after eight years of President Obama. Tell us a little bit about how you framed the work when you walked in the first day at SAMHSA and what you were trying to do
1: during your four years there. Well, it, uh, well, thank you for the intro. Uh, I actually think Trump was one of the best guys on the uh, addiction crisis. Why um, Why so? Well, well, he actually took the—I think—the correct two-pronged approach. We had a four percent decrease in overdoses, uh, which was actually the one of the largest decreases in overdoses in like uh, I think almost like forty years. Um, And what were the two prongs that helped drive that? Well, right now you're seeing an emphasis more on, like, demand. But when I looked at what President Trump was doing, we had a dual-pronged approach as far as border security plus uh, working on the demand side of addiction. I also believe that uh, a lot of the messaging that was coming out that – out of the – say, the administration at that time and other professionals actually also helped to kind of the communication to sort of curtail a lot of the use. So jawboning an issue, I don't want to say jawboning, but bringing a light to it actually works to sort of curtail a lot of individual use that people probably don't actually realize And messaging is very important. So we've had a war on drugs launched in 1970
2: by President Nixon. You have phases of this war run by Washington DC, first Nixon in the 1970s and the 1980s, focus on a lot of interdiction from Central and South America in the 1990s, tightening our drug laws, creating the Office of, of National Drug Control Policy, focusing a lot on what you can do with criminal law. In the 2000s, we see this infiltration of methamphetamine and dirty methamphetamine into the United States. And then in the teens, we start seeing opioids and and all these levels of addiction explode. Talk a little bit about why you wanted the president, support the president's focus on not just talking about the issue, but really addressing the demand side of addiction.
1: Well we did a lot to address the demand side we uh, you know we had uh, state opioid response grants. We uh, actually expanded treatment capacity. Uh, we did a lot on the demand side uh, as far as also uh, a lot of the uh, medication assisted treatment that we were uh, re- working on and expanding that as well. But to kind of go back from the from like the drug war days the 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 nineteen seventy one Nixon uh, was quoted as the drug war was actually a response to a heroin epidemic the nation was facing back then. It started in the late 60s and through the 70s, but it coincided with the Vietnam War and a lot of the uh, sort of counterculture. So at that point in time, when they passed that law, uh, we were experiencing about three uh, overdoses per 100,000 people. Um, And then that actually did cut the uh, overdose rate quite a bit. And then we we saw the expansion where the exponential overdose rate started to incur the way I pinpointed around 1998. Now, 1998 is actually sort of a significant time period. Yeah, why is that a hinge year? Okay. uh, Well, it coincides with two things. You had the pain. They, that's when uh, the Society of American Pain decided to make pain as a fifth vital sign. That went along with, like, respiration, heart rate, those sorts of things. And then it became, like, pain. You'd measure pain. So, so, what, that, so they got together, made this recommendation, and doctors both... And they pushed the it really did. hard, actually. The okay. VA actually took off with this as well. So when it, you're measuring pain, it became doctors were going to be graded on how well they anesthetized their patient's pain. Uh, what came of that was the loose ph- uh, prescribing of pharmaceutical medications. So that happened in the mid-'90s, around the late-'90s, 90s, which yeah. coincided uh, with the development of a drug. A new drug at the time was called OxyContin. Uh, so we you had, like, this... Very loose uh, permission of pain medicines uh, prescribed throughout the nation. Plus, you had another uh, chemical uh, added to it, which was Oxycontin, which uh, was basically, if you, I could. Go into the mechanics of that a little bit but yeah because at the time
2: when oxycontin was introduced everybody thought this was a miracle this was a great assist to deal with pain therapy but turns out well was, a, it was it was i would say it was a miracle flaw. in
1: theory right uh right so right. like exactly. let's say you had because an. Yeah let's say you had an eighty gram an eighty gram uh eighty milligram gram of oxycontin right and yeah. so at the time when they were first coming out they they changed it a number of years later but all you had to do was have an oxycontin in your hand a little bit of saliva and once you took the wax coating off you were sitting there in your hand basically with pharmaceutical grade heroin so that's really sort of really? how it worked there was no buffer no cut it was basically just straight narcotic uh Pharmaceutical grade, basically heroin. That was the first,
0: wait, sorry. That was the first formulation of OxyContin.
1: Correct. And that lasted for a number of years, by the way.
2: And so this 98 change in focusing on pain, you have the introduction of OxyContin. How long did it take before the medical profession understood that they'd started down a road that was both very dangerous and ultimately hurting
1: and killing people? Uh, I would say that took a while. Um, When did you, when you were treating people at this time? No, this is when I was back using it. So you're using, and did you
0: use OxyContin?
1: I did. Now, uh, I'm I'm, I'm pinpointing OxyContin, but also other opioids were flying around as well. So this was like one of the more preeminent ones that actually, I would say, kind of changed the course of history. Uh, But it was like one of the ones... Uh, that actually sort of altered the landscape uh, with this particular drug. Because okay. usually, a lot of times, when you're looking at pharmaceutical medicines, there's a type of a buffer or a cut or an aspirin or something that yeah, protects there's, there's, the
2: coats, as you said, to so so delay and extend well, the release and keep the level relatively Well,
1: usually, but, th- but what I'm saying mm-hmm. is this was pure narcotic.
2: Right, because, right. again, that coating
1: was so thin, and the intensity of the dosage was so high. Yeah, and it also, when you look at it, like a lot of the drugs are hydro, uh, and this was packaged, I'm not a chemist, but this was packaged with oxygen, which actually produces a more cleaner sort of euphoria to the
2: brain. So, just uh, pause a second on that. When you say hydro, are you, are you hydrogen. saying hydrogen? Right, yeah. so you're running it through the production <laughs> lane, right? Yeah,
1: I, I'm sorry. I don't yeah, know. That, uh, so, fine. like hydrocodone compared to like oxy, uh, which is like an oxygen base. I don't like. I said, I'm not a chemist, but I know one of them. The oxy produces a more cleaner euphoric type of, uh, high okay. than the other one.
0: So I'm sorry because I interrupted you no, in okay. your personal uh, experience here, but you mentioned it took a while for doctors to figure out that they had a major problem on their hand population-wide. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, about how when did well, people for, for, start for, to for, talk about oxycodone and doctors start to say, wait a second, we're starting to have an addiction and overdose.
1: I, I'm going to say you're going to have to push the needle. Like when I said I got sober at the very beginning of 2002, you're almost going to have to go a decade out uh to when doctors after you you almost yeah i don't have the time period no but just roughly but but i i I do want to paint a picture for uh to you it would this was a very lucrative sort of business to open up a pain management clinic now i could tell you what that looked like sort of on the street level i could paint a picture if you want to hear that but absolutely uh, uh, so uh in new orleans basically that's where i'm from my hometown is new orleans uh, during this time period in the late 90s, early 2000s, pain management cl- clinics proliferated throughout different all over the city. Uh, doctors and nurses like the ones that I were using, there was like a nurse that opened up several pain management clinics and you get a doctor under contract. So they were like franchising themselves. They weren't just one uh and then so people could hire somebody to go to each one of those clinics and they wouldn't pass along the information that this guy was just at the other clinic so you could you could technically get people to go hit every sort of clinic you wanted stack up up, uh and then for the longest time you wouldn't even need records and they didn't take credit card they didn't take insurance it was just cash um and it it just flooded the neighborhood. And this, when I'm saying they had franchisers, they also had competitors competing against alternate franchises. So it became seriously like the wild Wild West with uh, these pills, and it just happened really in my neighborhood like overnight. It just sort of flooded. Um,
2: so the the doctor, the, the medical community takes a long time to catch up to this, as well as the public policy community, I think, because again, to your point, these are unregulated, unsupervised and this is going on throughout the country, it takes a long time for state and local authorities to realize you've got difficulties here, people are presenting with addiction, serious serious consequences, side effects of of overdose and then ultimately death. So what drives the, the change or begin to understand, people begin to understand, whoops, this has really been a big mistake, we blew it, how are we gonna
1: handle making fixes here? Um, to be honest with you, I don't know. I haven't seen anybody actually say, "Hey, we made a great big mistake there." Uh, granted, uh, I mean, I, I think, I think we, under- regulations, we, we, we laws, understand. We understand that it was changes a big mistake. in the formulary. Well, they changed the formulary, right, yeah. on oxy. But I, I that by that time, I don't think that had a whole lot of an effect uh, because the penetration of this is so. Yeah, once you kind of once people start getting addicted to something. Uh, that doesn't stop because a particular drug or formulation actually stop, st- right. stopped existing, right? So basically what you did is you already kicked the addiction into motion. So reformulating Oxy by that time uh, to, to add. So as the nation got more and more addicted to these pharmaceutical pills, uh, the Mexican cartels actually backfilled uh, with cheaper heroin coming right across the border. So they were they were able to kind of... Uh, capitalize on what we were doing. This time frame is, uh, I mean, when
0: OxyContin is taking off, or you said 2012 or so, you think the medical community... Well,
1: uh, I don't know exactly, I would say, when the medical uh, community sort of got hip to it, but but I'm going to kind of point to, like, uh, since everything they were doing technically was legal, and I know people don't try to understand that, but if you went to the doctor and you, whether you were supposed to or not, you end up with a bunch of pill bottles of Oxycontin or whatnot, uh, Vicodin or whatever, basically all, those were all legal transactions. Mm-hmm. So the reason they were hard to stop, and the reason a lot of these pill mills took a lot of time to, to actually cease was because they were basically following the law. I kept waiting, like, for instance, I kept waiting in my hometown for the NOPD to raid one of these things. And it wasn't until I actually got into uh, or close to getting into the government, even though I had worked with a lot of people treating them, that I realized, wait, the backbone of all this was federal policy. That was actually pretty startling to me. And how was that the backbone of federal policy contribute? Because to because the pain management clinics, the way they sort of operated, you would walk in there, and what was your pain on a scale of one to ten? And I went with my buddy at the time, and he gave him an eight. Okay, so when he said eight, uh, the guy mm-hmm. sat down and wrote out three prescriptions for him. <laughs> okay. And then at this point in time, a lot of the local pharmacists were getting hip to it, and it was getting harder and harder to sort of fill, and people were sort of getting knowledge. Uh, so all they did was they faxed it to a warehouse across town in another part of the city, and you would just go to that warehouse and they would just hand you a sure, great yeah, big yeah. pad of pills. Okay. So you'd bypass the pharmacists altogether. I see. Uh, and right. there's just, at that
2: point, no federal, no state, no local touching, no, regulating, no, no, any of all. Okay.
0: okay, so right now, snapshot, how many overdoses a year are occurring in the United States? Well,
1: right now latest cdc data is 108,000. now uh i've been talking to people and they you know uh that i've been communicating which is staggering by the way that's uh, a, a terrible number but uh some people are, you know, talking it's going to even sort of go up from there, what, what we're seeing out there. So uh, that's, uh, you know, an awful, terrible number. Now, a lot of that is being driven by the uh, form, the uh, synthetic uh, opioids that we're seeing.
0: So let's get to the synthetic opioids after the break, and we'll talk about your recent trip to the border. Okay. Great. Great.